0: to this forum over the past few days, and surely we owe a great debt of gratitude for those who have put this uh, program on. As we approach the final hours of this uh, wonderful forum, I'm pleased to present a section on landscapes with a special emphasis on French influence on early gardens here in the South. As I think about this program, and the others that have appeared before us uh, during this time, I'm reminded that that this has been the most enlightening session, and I hope that this session (coughs) will add to what you take away, because it's been such an inspiring visit for me. I've had a lifelong passion for gardening. And growing up in the Mississippi Delta, I enjoyed gardening from a very early age. And I grew lots of different plants in that wonderful fertile soil in the Mississippi Delta. But I must confess that at Rueville, Mississippi, I don't think the French connection had quite made it that far (laughs) up the Mississippi River. The history of how we tend our landscapes over time is a record of how people living with a particular climate, social organization, philosophies of the day, have taken the available materials that they've had and organized them in such a way that they've given a parcel of the the outdoor space, a human scale that we call the garden. And since the beginning of civilization, people have sought to recreate or create that mystical paradise. And surely the French have contributed much to the history of garden making over the past three to four hundred years. Before we get into particulars in a very simple and simp- or simplistic way, I'd like to give just a little background because it sets the stage of how we came to be, to to have the gardens that we have today. Actually we have two great traditions in garden design. We have what we refer to the Eastern tradition and the Western tradition. And these two traditions have followed very different paths since the beginning of time when people began to garden or to form outdoor spaces. The eastern tradition is associated with a great sensitivity towards the landscape. There's a lot of mystery and symbolism associated with this tradition. And people, the designers of the eastern gardens, in other words, they take a bit of the indigenous landscape and they mold it in a very, very tender way to give form to their gardens. And, on the other hand, the Western tradition has had a little heavier hand in how they deal with nature. They control, they dominate nature in a much more forceful way. Gardens designed, particularly during the Renaissance, a period when great gardens came came into being, did not leave much to the imagination. You created a garden, you placed it out there, And basically you can see that footprint of that image uh, from most any vantage point. Now, these western gardens were much larger by eastern standards. Our landscape legacy is deeply rooted in the western tradition. While the western tradition had very little to do with conceptual design, approach to design, The world of horticulture and plants and selecting plants is very much steeply uh, uh, approached and and, uh, formed in the Eastern tradition. How many Japonicas can you name? How many Chinese can you name? So plants had a way of coming to America through seeds, Propagation of slips, and yet the society was basically closed to this part of the country. So, why do we set aside an hour today to look more, a little more deeply at our garden history as it relates to a particular Western culture like France? Our country was settled by immigrants from many countries in the West. But the French influence on our landscapes is undeniably very strong, and surely stronger than any of the other Western traditions. And fortunately, we have some wonderful records which give us ample proof to this early influence. As I began to tackle the substantive issues of the French influence on southern designs, I had to find some way to make comparisons between the French and our early designs. And among garden designers, the one thing that always comes up, that gardens more than anything else should have this. They should have pleasing proportions and a comfortable scale. Pleasing proportions and a comfortable scale. Now let's look here briefly at proportion because we're going to be carrying this theme throughout the lecture this morning. So what is is a proportion? What are proportions? They are parts of an organization. They're the pieces (coughs) of of, of a composition as they relate to the whole. Let's take this chair, for instance. In other words, we say the back related to the seat to the legs. In other words, the fitness of these pieces to each other as a composition. Let's go into your gardens this morning. And you say, Neil, 25 years ago I planted a tree. And that tree has become very large now. And I can't grow turf or grass beneath the canopy of that tree, what do I do? I say, well, you can move away, sell your house and go <laughs> somewhere else. Or you can plant a ground cover. And I say, start planting a ground cover because you can pray, you can fertilize, you can plant two or three times. But when you reduce the shade of the sunlight under a tree by 50 to 60%, you're out of the turf business. And so I say, start planting a ground cover. And I go back in a few days, and you've got a little donut around that tree. (laughs) And I say, no, that's not quite enough. And then I say, okay, like a doctor would say, take two aspirins and come back in two weeks. And so I would say, continue to plant. And at some point in this planting, I would say it's a very pleasing amount. A very pleasing amount related to the whole. Related to the rest of the grass. So, pleasing proportions. Now, let's take scale. Scale relates to unit sizes. But related to what? To the human figure. What does it mean when I take a chair like this? And so how how does it relate to scale? When I sit in this chair, I say it's wonderfully comfortable. And so I go into your garden this morning and I say it's wonderful to be in this space that has such a human scale. Or you go to a garden in the Louvre here and they bring the space down to that human scale. I'll say, okay, so let's take these time-tested principles. I don't believe I'm coming through. I'm hearing people in the back saying, "Oh, it's hard for me to stand." <laughs> Okay, let's take these time-tested principles and apply them to landscapes. And I want to, take, I want to take you to some well-known landscapes in France. Because it's Sunday morning and we need to re-acquaint ourselves with some of these images that are repeated in French landscapes. Now, very we, we also, I also have to say, we have to be very careful when we say France and French. Because France is a very large and complex country geographically. An authority on France has said the French landscape changes every 25 to 30 miles. And this same authority says that over 600 physical and cultural landscapes are identified in France alone. So let's be careful when we're talking about landscapes and giving a broad brush and say it's French. But on the other hand, I think you understand that although we will make some shortcuts today, we will... Look at those time tested and repeated themes in French landscapes. The first image is of Bolivicon. Now, this is a grand landscape. This is Louis XIV's Minister of Finance, and it is a huge landscape spread out over a big piece of the flat French countryside. Note that the indigenous landscape has been pushed back and this soup, this has been superimposed in, on, the, in the, on the landscape. Consider if you were up in this palace looking out over this wonderful geometry and note the relationship of these parts to each other and the great formality there. There is no question, but there is a clarity of design intent here. Very different what it would be if there would be an eastern landscape where there would be concealment, revealment, you panelize a little more. But in the western tradition, it's laid out very, very carefully. A better known would be Versailles. And this is another mammoth landscape. Louis XIV says, Now wait a minute. I can't let my minister of finance have something grander than what I have. And so he got to Le Notre to, to build this landscape on 15,000 acres of land in the con- French countryside. Arch, let's visit once more. Proportion. Note the relationship of these large units to each other and relating to the larger whole. And this is not just background of tree, trees. This is a bosque or a bosque, And what are these? These are large mammoth groves of trees, a single species, that subdivide this huge landscape. In uh, uh, at, at Versailles, and but there is a different scale here. In other words, you can go into these units of the same species of trees that are over acres, and move into these smaller units where the scale has been brought down in a much more comfortable way. And dissecting this wonderful landscape would be avenues of uh, alleys of trees. Where the perspective just disappears, and so you have a hierarchy of these wonderful avenues, alleys of trees, are uh, crossing this wonderful landscape, and there's a hierarchy of these of different sizes, and then we come to the famous parterres, and this is uh, the, the French landscape is characterized by this by pattern. The myth, um, Uh, The meaning of of parterre is on the ground, the geometry on the ground or along the ground. And this was first introduced by Claude Mollet in uh, 1595. Now, he was a member of a dynasty of planners and designers that lasted until the 18th century. Now, his inspiration came from Italian landscapes. But he brought to the French a much higher level of sophistication and surely size because these were much larger parterres than anything that you would have probably seen in Italian landscapes. The French were noted for their skillful use of elaborate parterres in their gardens. They often were covered with sand, colored sand, and flowers and other materials inside of of these clipped units. Hundreds of years, we still tend the gardens, in a way, the same way. I was at Versailles in last March, and uh, it was before, right before they were planting their uh, warm season annuals. And then you have these clipped, methodically clipped hedges and plants. The plants performs throughout this garden because this gave punctuation an accent to what was really a very horizontally oriented kind of landscape. And then, sometimes these plants were two-dimensional and as as, saliers, as we see in many of the French landscapes. And on a grand scale, the lingerie, you know, Louis XIV was a small brat, and so you had to have fresh citrus uh, orange juice every morning, and this is the plant's that were outside of the orangery in other words, during the warmest parts of the year, but all of these plants were tucked back in for protection. And yet, you can find other parts of the site where you bring the scale down to a much more human scale. In other words, as you move towards uh, blue, uh, Marie Antoinette's uh, Hamlet, you get smaller palace buildings where the proportions and the scale are much more human. Now we can m- move to another French garden. Now this is a farmhouse uh, garden. This is Givenet uh, Monet's garden. And it is still very, very much on a grid pattern. Parallel lines to everything and, and uh, perpendicular to the farmhouse. But the, the use of the plant materials are using much greater profusion. And the plants are allowed to hang out over these units, so it's a much, much softer approach to the landscape. And even in smaller landscapes, you see this formal layout in garden designs at the personal level. Well, fortunately, we have documented evidence in what our early landscapes were like in this country, in colonial times. (coughs) And two excellent sources that I have found to be very, very beneficial would be one, the historical New Orleans collection I host for this wonderful forum. And the other one is the uh, the clerk of Courts and Notarial Archives on Porter Street, also here in the New Orleans area. And let me just say that the um, staffs and the uh, researchers at these two uh, places have been most gracious in talking with me about the earlier landscapes. When Iberville first arrived uh, in 1698, he selected rather impressive real estate along the Mississippi River here, very close to where we are today. But this was wilderness. Now, Jason showed us some wonderful maps yesterday. And if I would have been abroad, I might have, I might have wanted some of this real estate, but people—this—they were hard times for centuries. This landscape had been ruled by unchallenged growth, and so we often romanticize what these landscapes <laughs> were like in earlier times. But life was everything but anything but easy. These early settlers settlers had to struggle in their early times. Can you imagine what growth was like? Just think, if you go out on holiday and leave your landscape for a few weeks and come back, think that this landscape had not ever been tended. And so growth had to be taken, had to be controlled. Yet the images that these people brought from their homes in France were very, very strong. Pleasure gardening early? No, indeed. In other words, they first had to get the wilderness under control and then they started adding fruit, fruiting plants and gardening. The first order of business was to get these plants would help them, that would help them to survive. As the savage settlers returned to Europe, back to France, they brought uh, that strong influence that continued to make this country uh, have a strong influence. Our focus today is on smaller landscapes, but keep in mind that the infrastructure in the city and other places were very much influenced by the the French. In other words, the, the streets, uh, a French engineer, Roger, was responsible for the grid pattern right where we are now, and uh, for the street layout here. Agricultural practices up and down the Mississippi were greatly influenced by the French, and they as the French introduced indigo and um, uh, the uh, rice to this part of the country. So, this first image here just shows you a very simple example. A uh, half the area is devoted to an orchard. And then these square, these square beds are just showing you the simple geometry that they had. Because this is the type of thing that would get this wilderness landscape under control, show a sense of order, a sense of framework, and a sense of permanence in these early landscapes. The next uh, image is a much more complicated uh, garden. But once again, very formal and lay out with beds of different shapes. And then this one is kind of a mess. But if you look closely, you see that the, there are large, nice, wonderful planting units. Beautifully proportioned here. But the French, as they came here, they were fascinated by the tropical plants. Because they were able to, they were able to bring many, many different plants to New Orleans that they had not had in their garden. So you see, all of these plants basically in the tropical uh, uh, area. One find that I find uh, that I had in the collection, which I thought was wonderful, so rich and yet so simple. We often hear about. People going back for various occasions, going on the grand tours, going back for uh, special occasions at home. Well, in this case, they went to a num- person went to a number of gardens and made these crude, rather crude sketches to bring back to their gardens here uh, in New or- in New Orleans. And these are from Versailles and the Tuileries and Fontainebleau and. This was in just a very nondescript little envelope that the researchers brought out for me to look at. And I said, can I touch it? You know, <laughs> so wonderful, these, these wonderful pieces. <clears throat> then we come to this, the uh, uh, the, the Kurt of Courts and Notarial archives. There are 5,146 of these 19th century watercolor survey drawings. And one person that is, you know, well known for these drawings is uh, Adrian Persat. You see the great simplicity and clarity of design and the the proportions of these beds to each other, a large vegetable garden and a pigeon house and some of the dependencies there. The One that I like very much and I thought was a marvelous example of the French design is this one, uh, 1825 a drawing, and beautiful, beautiful proportions here. Note the separations from the utilitarian area, the, the orchard in the background, and the, the uh, ornamental garden to the foreground. One that shows the, um, shows an alley of trees leading up to the house and a close-up very formal plantings, very clipped, topiary types of plants in these, in these gardens. As we move up the Mississippi River, surely one of the gardens the most remarkable and elaborate gardens along the Mississippi is Valparaine, and it's an 1840s uh, garden, and there may be some question as far as the conceptual design here. Uh, what, was, what was the intended purpose of this garden? But there is no question about how large and how much a dazzling accomplishment that this garden uh, was. In fact, visitors to this uh, garden called it Petite Versailles because it was so elaborate in its, in its layout. And Eliza Ripley, noting, uh, she talked to, uh, related to the social life here in New Orleans, she said the grounds were spacious and considered the finest in Louisiana. There was a miniature river running through this this landscape, meandering here and there, and then a summit on which you could rise to and overlook this wonderful, wonderful garden. These are uh, drawings from Claire Brown and uh, 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 Teddy Landry's work uh, uh, in papers at LSU. I'm sorry that it's been moved over, but uh, it shows you a reconstruction drawing there. And, you know, these were old drawings, and I had spent most of the day at the collection. And I said, you know, I've got to go and touch that garden. I've got to go see that garden. So I started back to Baton Rouge, and I went across the bridge, and I went down a little narrow paved road, and there it was... I got out of my car and I walked along the edge of that garden. And I looked there and it was this monstrous Japanese viburnum. And the viburnums don't volunteer. <laughs> Not a Japanese viburnum. They just don't volunteer in the garden. In that garden, that viburnum looks to me and said, Will you rescue me? Do how can a garden like this, gardens endure forever? This of garden is layering by generations. You add to, them, you take away, but the gardens endure. But how could a garden like this be abandoned? Now it was, it was, it was, it was bad that you know the house burned the huge there in the shape of a a horseshoe burned in 1922 I think. But yet gardens can endure. And if there is a silver lining here, and it's not much, but a colleague of mine has bought this place and she has the means to save that landscape. That kind of holy space there. Because she will save it forever. And there is lots of fascination about that garden. In fact, the road is paved because so many people still try to see into it. And it's the thicket. That's it. That's it. You can't even see into it. In fact, if you Google this, this garden, they'll say, go in the winter when there's no foliage and you can look into and see the crumbling ruins of a grotto and a bridge there. And so, behind this lock, you know, holds the, the mystery of one of the finest gardens ever created in this part of the country. And while we cons- question the conceptual uh, design of the garden, there is no question but which French gardeners tended to this particular garden. People. It entertained the future king of France, Louis Philippe, in this garden. Well, garden and plantation very close by fared a little better. Much better. This is Oak Alley and a a, a brother-in-law to Valcourine. And uh, there was a lot of friendly competition there. Whose garden was the best? And this alley of trees were planted 300 years ago by the French gardeners. And they have remained for a long time. Now this gave very impressive, it was a status symbol, very impressive entrance to these, to these, to these mansions along the Mississippi River. <coughs> and you know, during this symposium, I sat back, and I watch all of these wonderful people showing these wonderful, gorgeous pieces. And they take them back to their Holy of Holies with great security and climate control rooms where they're given protection. But how do we protect gardens like this that so vulnerable to hurricanes? and every other kind of act of nature. And it takes an exorbitant budget to maintain gardens like this and preserve them for all of us. And we, should owe, we owe a great grat- gratitude to people who will invest in gardens like this. The father of the river is evergreen and in the French style a wonderful parterre. Now a lot of these gardens you understand These properties were just cut out of an existing woodland, of forest. Others, they planted the trees. They were all close to the river because that was the high land. And so you have this wonderful parterre there. And you move on up to places like like Rosedown. And uh, here, uh, there was probably no precedent for the type of garden that Martha Turnbull uh, had at Rosedown. And uh what's that? And Both turned Garden, and she kept a meticulous diary, eighteen thirty-six to 1836 to ni- eighteen ninety-six. Now, her diary did not have or does not have very much commentary in it. It's pretty black and white, but she tells everything she did in the garden. Now occasionally she would make kind of commentary marks like my garden is in perfect order. But in 1864, she, she made this entry into her diary. She said, I cultivate five acres of vegetables, trees, three acres, flower garden, five acres. There was no one exactly like Martha Turnbow. Because she had a unique passion for gardening, she had the means, she had the land, she had the the slaves, she had the plants, and in the collection at, at LSU, you have all of these receipts that show where she bought many of her plants. But at Rosedown, you see wonderful French influence. So she went back and it tells in her diary and uh, the papers, she went back to France and she created a wonderful garden here at St. Francisville. And this is what is often referred to as the Eve Garden. But this is under major renovation now because that greenhouse or conservatory burned and there is is a move now to restore the, the conservatory. And in the collection there is this book Apparently she copied for this lean-to greenhouse at at uh, Rosedale. And this is a basque or basque of camellias. We have not touched this area. So it's the survival of the fittest. In other words, camellias produce seeds and they drop them. And whatever can grow, grows in this collection of seedling that have been there for years and years and years. And what's so wonderful about Rosedown, you know, I've worked there for a number of years, and you get so much criticism when you don't have a florithous garden, much flowering. People want to see a lot of flowers when they, you think of a garden. But the thing that's so rich about Rosedown are the old plants out there. This is a, this is a box of Central a dwarf boxwood that Martha Turnbow planted and it's, it's tall, taller than the ceiling right now. And there are plants all through that wonderful garden that are old. Well, right up the road, another mile or so, you have you have, um, uh, Afton Villa. Now, this is an avenue that is quite different. In other words, it's that conceal and that reveal. You catalyze the people that are coming to your place of the Lord. Because here is a serpentine, a half-mile serpentine alley of live oaks, double planting of live oaks, leading up to the uh, to the house that actually burned in 1962. But it's a 40-room mansion, uh, a French, considered French Gothic, that was modeled after a grand house in Tours, France. David uh, Barra and his second wife, Susan Wilford Barra from Kentucky, had very impressive gardens at, at uh, Afton. And they were designed by a French garden designer. This is the maze. This is one of the former gardens here. And the garden is actually on seven terraces. And on the 7th Terrace was the conservatory, the greenhouse, where she grew pineapple and, uh, and, and citrus. <clears throat> now, we've been talking about the gardens, but there were lots, of, several number of buildings in these gardens that helped to take the transition, move the transition from larger to a much more intimate scale. While many of these buildings were very utilitarian in nature, they had this also, the other effect is the pisionnaire. It mirrored the same, uh, the, uh, same qualities that they were used in in France. And you know, in France, you had to be of the aristocracy to have a pisionnaire. And the pigeons, you know, would go out to the peasants' farm the ne- in the morning, get fat and happy, and then come back. And it caused all kinds of... And finally, the revolution, because in other words, they were eating all the peasants' grain and their cabbages. So they'd come back and have lots of babies and make everybody fat, you know, there. And so you have a number of these wonderful pigeonaires and garcinaires, the, the uh, bachelor's quarters of the bachelor's pan, uh, pads that would be in these wonderful gardens. And they would also fi- uh, provide the transition from of the larger size of the mansion to the garden and on out to the field. Well, formal plantings are still very, very much alive in Louisiana and the Gulf South today. This is Bocage, and last November we started planting the live oak alley at Bocage. And you see the trees that are then, these kind of tacky magnolias have been removed But uh, the larger live oaks will form this wonderful alley, wonderful alley to the to the river out front. And just a mile from there is this marvelous place, the Hermitage, the Judicious uh, on there. And this is an alley of some twenty-five or thirty years uh, old. And uh, then people that can't even build a house yet. They're building the LA first in hopes that they will one day build a house at the end of the LA. Now all of these LAs that form this this kind of status, they're not all in live oaks, or where there's some wonderful old pines at at the in the Grand Coteau And a Bosque of of cypress trees. Uh, that now this is not in Louisiana, but it's very, very close. It's just <coughs> over the line in Mississippi. Plants were very important in these early gardens in the South. As noted earlier, New Orleans being a major court. And uh, the French were very instrumental in, in introducing wonderful plants to the American scene. And one person uh, that comes up repeated in the uh, literature is Andrew um, uh, Michaud. He's a Frenchman, an early plant explorer and um, collector. And he actually changed the face of American gardens because he introduced thousands of plants to the American gardens. And he's accredited for introducing the wonderful crape myrtle and camellias to our gardens. Incidentally, his work is being featured in a a lecture at the Winston-Salem Conference next month uh, in Winston-Salem. Now, during this time there were all kinds of Promotions of plants and for sale. Some of the newspapers here in New Orleans were printing bilingual editions to their papers, and so they were prom- uh, they were promoting plants. And some of these some of these plants, like pears, there would be hundreds of varieties that would be advertised. And even French gardeners would in uh, would advertise their services, trying to come to America for some of these gardens. And rose breeding was a big, big French operation. Probably some of the the, the, the most famous roses of all had come from French. This is Souvenir de Malmesa and it's the one, it's the rose that's considered the the queen of fragrance and beauty. It's a bourbon rose of 1843. And Malmesa is Josephine's uh, a country place, and and is noted for its wonderful, wonderful roses. Now, all plants didn't come just this way. At Malmasong, Empress Josephine had cypress trees from Louisiana growing by her lingerie. And she had Louisiana iris from uh, New Orleans East where there were huge masses growing in the swamps. She had irises growing at Nile de Song, as well as the purple, the, the verbena. And so this was a breeding, uh, noted for its breeding in Lyon, uh, uh, in uh, France, was the leading uh, uh, city for rose breeding. And many, many famous roses originated there. In fact, 600 roses came on the market between 1840 and 1924 from France alone. In addition to plants that we have, this is the camellia and the uh, the crepe myrtle that uh, Michel introduced, but there was garden embellishments. And one of the most important and and stunning was this French pot uh, that's built, uh, made in Andeuse in the south of France. And it's still being made today. And if you go to places like Longwood, they have some of these stunning pots in their collection in the, uh, the gardens. For the last few minutes, I want to show you three very important gardens. And this one is the, first is the Academy of the Sacred Hearts. All of these gardens have a very close French connection. This is an 1835 garden, and they have, the nuns have a letter saying that this garden was patterned. This garden was patterned after a garden in Meaux, France, Bishop, uh, Archbishop uh, Brass, uh, Brassway. And uh, he had Lenortra to design his garden. So this garden was patterned that It's a very simple, elegant garden, quite large, but very, very formal. Beautiful proportions in the landscape, the accent and the stature here in the front. Many different shaped beds. These were uh, motifs taken from the decorative arts in France. And uh, I want to go back and show you. Unfortunately, they're growing knockout roses. And Laura petalum and dwarf gardenia in some of these beds here. just tore me up when I saw that. <laughs> I mean, how can you have a garden so wonderful and make such stupid, you know, mistakes? <laughs> and look at the pruning cro- of the crepe myrtle. Oh. that's myrtle. yes. And I pay $50, you know, to get permission to 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 look at this garden and I just wanted to say, yeah, you need help. <laughs> but wonderful chameleon, an alley of camellias, and people. When you have a camellia with a stump like this, you gotta an know. Old, old <laughs> Another wonderful garden is the 1840 Henry Penn House, and this is the garden of Robert Smith in Brobridge. and with the help of archi- archi- uh, archival drawings. Uh, Historian Smith has recreated in a 19th century garden there. And it's, it's very simple but very lovely. And uh, the, the topi there are uh, the the carpet, the green carpet laying out there with the gravel, which is so French. And you see this same type of uh, development at Monticello. And I uh, took this picture in the uh, winter, and these beautiful uh, jardiners of, of pots from Andeuse, France out in front there in the same uh, picture a few uh, well, this summer with the crape myrtles and looking back on the wonderful crape myrtles. And he uses uh, all heirloom plants basically here. He has a wonderful Louis Philippe uh, rose and uh, unfortunately it was not in flower at the, the time. The last garden that I want to show you is one of my favorites. I can all but get emotional about this garden. Because, I, you know, this is the garden of Jack and, uh, Dr. and Mrs. Jack Holden. in uh, it's Maison Chanel in pointe de Paris. And um, I think it has everything. I have traveled the world and I have been to many, many gardens. But no garden that I have ever tend- been to and visited. do I have a more wonderful memory than this particular garden. It has everything. In other words, look at the structure here. The wonderful scale. The taste. The touch. The smell. In other words, you bring your, your senses into being in this closer space. So there's a hierarchy of space here. That intimate space that's edged by these pews are the cypress pickets. And then there's the space that's out there with the pigeon air where the animals would be. And then on beyond that would be where the boogerbears would be. <laughs> and the hierarchy of space. And people, this is not boxwood. This is privet. This is the old woodland privet. It's like drinking Dr. Pepper, you pruned it at 10, 2, and 4. It grows that fast. But what the Hogan's have done is take the structure and soften that structure with wonderful softening plant material, still having the order that's very, very French, but adding the touch of these wonderful heirloom plants in that garden. And in the back, it's a completely different spirit. In other words, good control, very much like the gardens that we saw in the earlier images in the, in the, in the French Quarter. In other words, where you have very restricted growth there, but yet allowing some of the plants to fold out over in the gardens. And then this wonderful structure there covered with the muscadines and the wonderful heirloom plants and the cloche, in the words of French, you know, the, the bell jars there to give a little added advantage to growing plants earlier uh, in the, uh, the season. There is this one, and when I think of this, this garden, I think of the Chinese proverb that goes something like this. Out of its hollowness of its hollowness arises the reality of the vessel. Out of its hollowness arises the reality of the vessel. Here in these last two gardens particularly, people have taken a piece of the landscape. They've brought it down to the human scale. That kind of scale that touches our emotion, our senses, and makes gardening worthwhile, And And there's another proverb that goes like this, a Chinese proverb. If the soul can be content with an acre, why cultivate a mile? If the soul can be content with an acre, why cultivate a mile? Some of the most cherished gardens that I've seen are people that might be an invalid that can just garden in a pot. A little window box but people they are gardening. Russell Page in his most provocative book, The Education of a Gardener, says this, and I quote, We have chased every style from all over the world through the American scene to be tried, accepted, modified, and then discarded. I don't think Mr. Page was exactly right in all of what he said, because I think the French have made a lasting contribution to our gardens. Garden styles will continue to be borrowed and adapted to the whims of garden entrepreneurs everywhere. But in the coastal South, Nearly all the world's garden styles have been tried, but we often come back to that French <coughs> influence. The French have made a profound impact, especially in early garden making. I had one quote. Uh, it doesn't come up. And, uh, but let me finish by Thomas Jefferson, who was a wonderful gardener. And he says this, No occupation is so delightful to me as the culture of the earth, and no culture comparable to that of a garden. I am still devoted to the garden, but though no man, I am but a young gardener at heart. Thank you very much. The Southern Garden Symposium is bringing a very distinguished French architect landscape designer to St. Francisville on the 14th and 15th of October. His, Geron Hellerin, he has a wonderful garden in Normandy, but his real call to fame are antique, antique garden tools, and he's written a book about. So if you're interested, give us your name, and we'll send you a brochure. There are brochures out here. Next year's chairman is sitting right here, and she will also take your name to attend this wonderful symposium. Thank you.